2: Welcome to the first episode of a channel that I still have to name. But thank you for agreeing to talk to me about your book. Can I ask you to introduce yourself?
0: Absolutely. My name is Lee Claire Laberge from Virginia, so I go by my first and middle names, um, so it's Lee Claire. I am a professor of English, at the City of University of New York, the BMCC campus. I study in general, like my. You know, sort of long research profile would be connections between the economy and different cultural forms at different particular moments. So I've written about finance and the rise of postmodern literature in the 1970s and 80s in the US. I've written about contemporary art and uh the problem of um pervasive wagelessness of many cultural workers. Um that book uh, also had a chapter on the figure of the um, unpaid animal as a kind of artist. And that gave me some of the ideas for this book, uh, which is called Marks for Cats, uh, which is also about connections between the economy and culture, but in a very sort of different different scale, different approach. Um, but I certainly see the themes uh, going through my research.
2: Yeah, um, so... I read your introduction, and I read about Mitten, your kitten, and and um, and maybe like a brief uh, snapshot of what went behind the book. But can you tell us the story of um, you know what the story sure. of Marks for Cats?
0: Sure. Um, so my last book was called uh, Wages Against Artwork. Uh, it's the one I mentioned about unpaid um, artists. Unpaid cultural workers, and um, as a result of that book, I got asked to speak to a lot of different arts audiences. I got asked to speak at art schools and talk to artists, and many of them are very motivated by and read a lot of of critical theory, economic theory, Marxist theory, aesthetic theory, um, but they they sort of develop rather kind of um, idiosyncratic, we might say, concepts and of of. Terms like the commodity, aesthetic, uh, production, finance, muddy, alienation, and so a few artist friends of mine encouraged me to make some videos where I would explain basic terms of Marxist political economy for artists. And you know, I'm a teacher, I'm a professor. I said I just can't make any more pedagogical video. It's just too much. I can't listen to my own voice. It's too boring. Um, And they said, well, what if you weren't explaining them to students, but to a group of cats? And so um, we made these videos. They were quite popular. The cats loved the material, uh, particularly Marx's writing on the class struggles in France. I mean, they just went crazy. And viewers can check these out. They're up on marksforcats.com, They're up on on Vimeo. Um, And after... After seeing these videos, uh, some publishers reached out to me to ask me if they could become a a book. And my immediate response was like, I have no idea. I doubt it. You know, it's just me explaining the commodity form to a group of cats. Um, And then, you know, I... The idea of sticking with an academic project that I had such sort of like unbridled fun with, I mean, it was a very joyous project, I love to write, but uh, this project was just, it was more fun. I just started remembering these random feline terms that had to do with economics. So wildcat strike, for example, it's a kind of strike not supported by a union. I mean, we still call them wildcat strikes, but the term is of um, early 20th century origin. Um, or wildcat banking. It's a form of deregulated banking. It was very popular in the Midwest U.S. in the mm, 1840s through 1870s, um, 80s. And, you know, then, of course, I thought that's just that's just domestic cats. A wildcat is a, you know, a feral domestic cat or like a, a a small lynx or something. But then I started thinking, like, oh, my God, the Black Panthers. You know, here's this radical black organization calling for an abolition of, of capitalism, claiming that capitalism is a fundamentally racist order. And they named themselves after a panther, but that's a cat. You know, they named themselves after cats. And um, and this is right when the pandemic was, was setting in. So this was early 2020. And uh, very soon, I just sort of found myself trapped in this weird... Marxist cat universe where I would think of every economic moment I could imagine and wonder if there was a cat presence there. And there there was, and I mean there were in so many. Um and so that's how the book sort of started to take shape.
2: Yeah. I also read that um did I read it or did I just imagine? Uh your your uh cat mitten came to your dreams. <laughs> that that was, was
0: at the end of the book. Yeah. At the end of the book, yes. I mean the um you know the book is it's many things it's a it's a satire of of academic writing, particularly sort of like the Marxist male monograph, you know, or anarchist male monographs something like debt, the first five thousand years or uh, passages from antiquity to feudalism uh, or the long twentieth century, this sort of huge long durée of a time period, so in a sense, it plays with that, but it but it also is a serious question, what should the relationship between Marxists or people interested in in radical political economy and animals be? And um, the mitten uh, was my cat for many years. He passed away in 2016. But yeah, two years later, he came to me in a dream and sort of told me to to get with it, like to really start to think about animals in a more... A more critical and a less sort of sentimental register. um and and so he did in part motivate uh, the book in a way that's the, the you know that feels very nice, that's very, very sweet. Um, although I do have to say that one of the things that I have learned since in the process of writing the book and as a result of writing the book is that I don't think I would ever have a pet again. um and I certainly would never have a cat again. So it's bittersweet, but it's a
2: dialectic.
0: And this yeah. is a book about dialectics, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, so what was the writing process like? Um, I mean, there is, there is, of course, you're bringing art and theory, and I'm guessing that there was a lot of collaboration between artists, illustrators, um, and, and your research, right? Yes. So oh, what was the process like? How did you bring all of this together? Yes. What? Yeah. Excuse me for a <laughs> second. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so the book has a
0: quite... Um long historical time scope right times I mean it's it starts in the ninth century the beginning of the book starts in the ninth century and it ends with the sort of first election of Donald Trump and the and the pandemic so it's about 1200 years so to do that kind of history um, I really needed to have a model and of course I just said this was a satire of sort of male Marxist long duré economic histories but the reason I can satire them is, and do so with a lot of fidelity, is that I love reading them. Uh, So I did have the, I did have the sort of historical narrative in place. And, you know, Marx himself says, the history of capitalism begins with feudalism. Therefore, any investigation into capitalism starts in the, in the Middle Ages. Um, And so that's where I started. Um, That was the hardest and most difficult for me to write about, because it was so far out of my sort of, um, purview um, as a as a sort of literary historian and critical theorist, and then the closer we got to the nineteenth and twentieth century, the more comfortable um, I became. But I relied on you know um, some really wonderful scholarship, and in the acknowledgments, um, I cite a few books that I had also cited you know in a footnote in the in the text, but I say these are books that really gave me a bold vision of what a writing process could be in terms of an academic book. and two of them, as you suggest with your question, were very visual books, so Klaus Tewilite's 1977 Male Fantasies, um, you know, sort of this incredible survey of the role of uh, masculine aggression and masculine fantasy in bourgeois capitalism leading up to the the Third Reich um, But the images of art, of culture, of literature that he uses, um, I mean, sometimes there's a direct relation to the text, and sometimes it's more montage-like. And so I really wanted to follow that. So the book has about 100 images, a few of which I commissioned, uh, but many of which I didn't, I found in in archives. Um, The amazing thing about writing about the Middle Ages is the the visual record and you know the book the subtitle of the book is a radical bestiary and a bestiary is a book of animals that is illustrated um and and i use some of these illustrations but that was another one of my models was was the bestiary was a book that tells stories about animals through pictures and text. Sometimes there's a direct relationship. Sometimes there's an associative relationship. I like the feeling as a reader that that engenders. Um, there's a sort of imaginative and playful space. Um, another book that I that I was so uh, have been so moved by is um, Sunara Taylor's book "Beasts of Burden," um, which is about disability and animal studies and animal rights. Uh, and she herself is a painter, and she used her own paintings um, to illustrate this book. Um, and you know, her book, Beasts of Burden and, um, and, and Male Fantasies, they're, they're, capa- they're capacious at the level of the imagination. And I read so many academic books that are so smart, so well-argued, argue- so well-researched, but I wouldn't necessarily say they go on flights of fancy. You know and this whole book is a kind of like flight of fancy like if we follow hundreds of thousands of cat references through 1200 years where do we arrive in terms of the relationship between what the economy is and what an animal can embody and signify and what might be other possible permutations of that so in a sense it's a very speculative book um which just made it such a delight to to write, you know, it was it was really a fun book to write, and also who doesn't want to look at cat pictures all day? I mean, who knew that that could be an academic pursuit?
2: Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. Um, I mean, I would say when you think about Marx and reading Marx, Marxist writings, it is well, at least for me, it is a different uh, task altogether to read it once and then to interpret and to understand what the heck that essay is about. And that is generally our approach towards academic writing, that it is serious, it has to be serious, right? But you're bringing in a flair of fancy. It is, like you said, you had fun writing it and there is capacious imagination, you know, in bringing these two worlds together. So um, is this really your approach to, you know, writing like academic writing in general, or is it a, a tradition that you're trying to bring into your writing?
0: I mean, I don't know what it would be for other people. It's an interesting question. Um, I think that the you know the book was published by Duke uh, University uh, Press. They published my last book too. Um, and if you if you look at the different editorial uh, profiles of Duke, what their what their editors are looking for, many of them say that um, they're interested in books that are that speak between disciplines, that span disciplines. And I sort of wonder what the future of academic publishing is like. First of all, what is what are the what is the ability of any particular academic discipline to reproduce itself? Well, in the discipline I'm in, English, it's not great. I mean, people retire and positions are not being filled. Um, graduate students are not getting jobs. Um, so, what does that do to the disciplines and the solidity of the disciplines? That's one question. Another question is. What happens to academic monographs when people no longer need them for tenure because people no longer get tenure because no longer tenure track jobs? I mean, that's the, there's such a relationship between academic publishing and a certain arc of a supposed academic career trajectory that many people no longer follow. I mean, they might want to follow it, but there's not an infrastructure there. And I sort of imagine or I sort of wonder if if Marks for Cats speaks to a kind of um, hope for a different academic publishing, not bound to disciplines, not bound to sort of the same kind of career trajectories not because it wasn't good and and not because the disciplines weren't fruitful but because there there's the infrastructure that sustained them is disappearing and so if that's the case I mean I'm a you know I'm a professor now I don't I don't need to write more books I do it because I enjoy it but if that is the case like what would we want of our publishing I mean many of us, do deeply enjoy our research, and deeply want to share it and have a community. But what does that community look like in a sort of para-academic form? And so I I wanted a book that, you know, my hope for the book, I mean, I I will only know this based on people's reaction, but my hope for the book is that people uh, with, with a background, theoretical background in Marxism, economic background, could read and enjoy the book. And people who didn't have that and wanted it could get something from it. And that in a way it would be not only an interdisciplinary book, but a book that doesn't require a a specialty, a theoretical specialty, to really get something out of thinking about our current ecology in a moment of crisis and what the relationship is between human and non-human animal life in this particular conjuncture. And that's, you know what, that's a hard enough topic. Like, why not have fun doing it? Like, why not have fun producing that kind of work? Why not have fun reading about it? Again, I don't know because the book is just out, you know, a few for a few weeks. Um, but that was my hope for it.
1: Yeah. yeah. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
2: So um, let's talk more about the book. Um, So some of the takeaways for me was uh, one was about the, you know, the symbolism of the feline symbolism in language, in politics, economy, culture. I mean, even as I was reading it, I was like aware of um. The number of symbolism or number of symbols and metaphors we have in the language itself, right, in the English language, and uh, how it appears as you make it clear through, you know, various examples, uh, like the British Empire and the lion, for example, or the Black Panther that, that you just mentioned about. And it is actually asking us to focus on this interspecies relationship or the coexistence of um, humans and animals uh, in the environment, right? And to think beyond the Anthropocene. So, um, well, my broad question for you is, what is the advantage of thinking about economic history through cats or thinking about cats through Marx or economic history? Yeah, it's a great question. I think a little
0: bit it depends on where you're coming from as a reader, right? So, um my my sort of ultimate utopian fantasy for this book would be um anybody who likes cats is a potential ally in an interspecies marxism, right? That's the sally of the book. I mean, that's the sort of grand dream of the book um that all cat lovers are potential comrades. You know, that's the term I use in the book, um I was really influenced by Jodi Dean and her thinking about about the comrade. Um, so that's that's one way to answer the question. Another way to answer the question, or another way to think about the question, um, is that you know I think probably um, since two thousand seven two thousand eight, there there really has been a um, an emergent field. I mean I don't know if we would yet call it a discipline, I don't think so, but of animal studies in the academy, whether this is animal studies as history, uh, literary and cultural studies of animals, um, sociology of animals, anthropologists are just doing incredible work in animal studies. Um, and it ways I think maybe some of the most exciting work is coming out of, of anthropology in animal studies, but um, but not so much in political economy. And not so much in Marxism, and not only are are they not thinking about non-human animals, but there's actually a um, almost a derision um, that that they would that they with which they intercept a question about. What is the role of the of the non human animal here? Uh, what is the role of of Marxism in a climate crisis? Uh, now this now this is starting to change even in the past three years since I've written the book, um, but still not really. There's there are questions of degrowth, of environmental scale, of fossil fuels, but like really, what does a what does a political equality with non human animals look like? I don't think that they're thinking about it, and they're absolutely um averse to thinking about it and in a way i think they sort of intercept those kinds of questions as a joke like are you serious do you really want me to think about that and so part of the point of the book is to say or the joke of the book marks for cats is to say you're going to treat this question as a joke anyway marxism and animals like so let's make it a joke um but it's also you know, with with that moment, with that sort of satirical intent or the idea of that joke, there there also is an absolutely genuine question um, to ask, which is, um, I see so many critical theorists, I see so many Marxists in the book. I show that that their love of animals goes back hundreds of years. They have these intimate, loving relationships with an animal with with whom they are in a sort of ownership relationship toward a pet um, but that does not become a sort of model for a larger concept of political care and comradeship how do we get from there to here right like how do we take so many people marxists and not i mean they're are genuine sort of love and delight for the the animals with whom they share their domestic and intimate spaces, how do we turn that into a politics that is not about ownership, is not about, oh, they're my children, um, but is a a sort of radical politics that says, look, we, we live in a moment of climate crisis. We live in a moment of environmental devastation. Industrial animal agriculture is a huge part of that. I mean, you know, something like, I don't know, 40%, 38% of the world's um, landmass is given over to cattle farming and, you know, industrial animal husbandry. Like, how do we think about that from a Marxist perspective as something that that needs to be abolished, right? That needs to be reconstructed. And I would include pet ownership in that too. I mean, that gets a lot of pushback, Um, but let's at least have the thought, like let's at least imagine what a different model would look like that would foreground a political economic analysis, a historical analysis, and one that takes seriously a commitment to non-human animals.
2: Yeah, um, and I um, I was trying to find your quote, but um, you also uh, referred to angles and about um, uh, being an um, being an omnivore, um, and how it is related to subjecthood. I think angles, angles. Yeah. Yes. Is um, there a question? Yeah. So my question was about you know in between this pet ownership, um, and there is also this question of consumption that brings. Oh yeah. Oh. Relationship between you know humans and animals mm-hmm. in a very um, well contested site right um, because there are people um, who are I mean like me who love animals in general but I also eat animals and um, and it's a very um, difficult place to be in when you talk about human animal relationship and uh, it is interesting that you know um, Engels had you know mentioned about it um, in his work. Uh, I mean, Ingalls.
0: You know, I think the I think the quote that you're um, you're thinking of is In- <laughs> Ingalls. Ingalls and Marx. They have some some terrible quotations on 19th century societies for the prevention of animal cruelty or vegetarianism. So Ingalls has this one quote where he says, um, and he's thinking of India. Ah, uh, the 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 country, uh, the subcontinent. He's saying, vegetarian societies sooner or later seem to succumb to um, cannibalism. I mean, it's it's an obs- obscene and insane quotation, um, but he is responding. They are responding to a moment in the nineteenth century, the late nineteenth century, when. Mostly bourgeois reformers and moralists begin to question industrial humanity's relationship to animals. And I think that, you know, yes, is there something suspicious and problematic about, you know, a, 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 factory owner in in Manchester in the 1880s, like worrying about a particular street ur- urchin while his whole business depends on the impoverishment of millions of people? Absolutely. Like, this is not saying that they, were, that they were incorrect to reject a kind of bourgeois sentimentalism. But what I try to show in the book is that there's also a really different and radical history of human longing for a political emancipatory relationship to animals, which is not about particular animals, my dog, my cat, your bird, whatever, but a kind of species freedom uh, that many, not necessarily Marxist always, although many of them, somebody like Angela Davis, somebody like Rosa Luxemburg, uh, a a radical anarchist like Louise Michel of the Paris Commune, um, jacobin uh john oswald i mean there's a there's an entire genealogy here of radical thinkers who were trying to reconstruct a freer society for more beings not just human ones and that's what i would like a a contemporary marxism to be in conversation with not you know or did you make your 25 five dollar tax deductible donation to the You know, ASPCA for the year. No, they're right to make fun of that. But, you know, Engels' conception of freedom includes the line, humans will, humans will leap out of the animal kingdom into a world of of freedom. Uh, well, why do we need to leap out of that kingdom, right? What would it mean to share a freedom with them? Rosa Luxemburg, who was a incredible lover of cats, her own cat in particular, but all animals, uh, she parrots this line. I mean, what what do we need to get a bit more imaginative in thinking about animals? Is not something to escape from or to deride or to eat, but you know, to to share a comradeship with and a political community with.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned that um, cats were a witness to historical events and they had access to domestic spaces, which which kind of I mean, it's I, I, I felt like I was taking that for granted, you know, the access of animals in our domestic intimate spaces, especially cats and dogs and then also rats and cockroaches and you know everything else. So what makes cats special? Um, why did you choose cats over dogs? Yeah, yeah. I, as you can
0: imagine, I get asked this question a lot. Like, could you write marks for dogs, marks for horses, uh, marks for frogs, marks for rabbits, marks for birds? By the way, marks for birds. Yes, you absolutely could do that. Um, and I think the answer is there's a there's a genuine answer which is I really like cats and I have a lot of fun with them. And that's, you know, at a certain point, I think that's any researchers answer is I liked researching this because I had, there's an aesthetic appreciation here about the moment um, or the text or, you know, what have you. Um, But, in doing all of this research, as you can also imagine, I came across a lot of different animals. So cats are some, you know, sometimes they're by themselves, sometimes they're in the company of other animals. Um, and I don't wanna I don't wanna make a I don't wanna make a sort of a radical, like a universal claim or an ahistorical claim, but I have read that cats are among the most represented animals in human cultural production.
2: Yeah. Yeah. As you, as you show with all those. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, And then
0: I would say, I would specify that and say, um, particularly where the economy is concerned. And that, that's what this book is about. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things about cats is their, their anti-authoritarianism, their, their sort of conniving ways, their perceived selfishness and inability to be taught or trained. um, That has meant many different economic things at many different moments in the history of capitalism and feudalism. But cats have always functioned as economic signifiers in this period, in this 1200 year period would it be different if we kept going back i mean if we went into egypt if we went into rome yes absolutely would it be different if this were a non western book this is a very eurocentric book a uh, uh, marks for cats absolutely could be written in southeast asia by or you know by somebody who's a south asianist it would be an amazing book it would be a very different book right um so there you know there's a there's a there's a two part answer to that question, which is they really are overrepresented economically. And I do really like them. Um, But again, my relationship to how I would imagine that like, and that preference has changed as a result of, of writing this book.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So my final question, because my area is film studies about cat and films, um, which I think, would be like a you know a continuation of everything that you have covered you you have i mean your archives cover a lot of literature cultural symbols and everything but um i was a little disappointed to not see any um you know film references but i understand because of the time period uh you have covered or did i did i miss yeah there's a uh, chris marker oh oh chris marker yeah i enjoy his films um so one example that came to my head was uh, Fuses, which is, again, it is an experimental film by Carol Schneemann. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so it actually, you know, it is yes. related to Cat as a witness to, you know, yes. an, uh, sexual event. Yes. yes. Um, and then I also thought about Princess Carolyn in Bojack Horseman. Um, but anyways, um infuses at least the cat is a witness, the cat, the camera itself becomes, uh, the cat's eyes and it is, it is the cat's vision that, uh, we get as humans. So there is some kind of, um, even though it is through a machine and through imagination, there is still like a human animal connection, uh, to witnessing a very intimate moment over there, uh, which, which was something that came to my head when I was reading your book. Um, are there any other, uh, you know, interesting cat stories from media that you uh, that you wanted to include but could not. And I'm sorry I missed the Chris Marker reference. Yeah, A Grand, the grand, a grand Without
0: a Cat, uh, you know, where he actually uh, has this great line, I quote in the book, where he says um, a cat is always on the side of freedom or always suspicious of power. But it's a comment about Nixon, about Richard Nixon. So it's a wonderful um yeah, it's a wonderful moment. And the Carole Yishnaman, yes, I knew that because I, I make reference to that in my previous book, uh, Wages Against Artwork, um, when I write about animals and artists. Um, There's so many. I mean, th- that's the answer. There's so many. And the book could have been, it could have been twice as long. I have 100 images. That was a compromise with the press. I could have had 200. It could be a whole book of, of of cat images. I mean, it's, it's genuinely such a rich subject area Um, someone just sent me a quote this morning about Levi strauss talking about his cat and i have this little section on poststructuralism and structuralism and i didn't know that and i mean you know as you can imagine having published a book like that now i'm just absolutely deluged with cat anecdotes of things that i missed or you know couldn't couldn't fit in or knew about um I think some of the some of the more surprising ones, um, you know, Frederick W. Taylor, uh, who who essentially invents the the engineering and automated processes for assembly line work through Fordism, works with with Ford. Um, Ford himself, who got his idea from watching industrial animal slaughter. But that's a different story. But he, you know, Taylorism is about repetition, rep- like monotony and repetition, deadening of skill to produce the the most objects in the shortest amount of time. He trained his cat like that. He came up with his cats named like that. So, you know, it's these these odd little anecdotes that you're just reading or the fact that Karl Marx's um, family surname is Ellen Bogen, which means cat's elbow in German. And and if you go to the Jewish cemetery, Today, outside of Venice, Marx's ancestors are buried there, and they all have cats on their graves. This is from the 15th and 16th century. I mean, there are just so many of these wonderful anecdotes. Yeah, I wish I could have included five more pictures of the Marx family grave filled with cats uh, in Padua at the Jewish cemetery. But, you know, one has to work in the bounds.
2: Yeah, uh, but I completely understand uh, you being inundated with cat pictures and cat anecdotes now, because uh, one thing that the book did for me was to, you know, start thinking about cats in a way that I have never thought about cats before. It is, um, like I said, oh, cats have access to domestic places, right? Um, like in, in my house, I don't own a cat, but we have like stray cats who would just walk in and walk out as they please. And um, they don't care for authority. Uh, they don't care for boundaries. They don't care for anything. They just, you know, come and leave as they please. And and about representations of cats in, you know, cinema and popular culture as well. So um, in that way, I think the book is, like, marvelous. It It is, like, igniting that thought about, oh, cats. Thank you. I mean,
0: that's, you know... That's my hope. I said one hope for the book is that every cat lover becomes a Marxist, but the other is that people who are not attuned to cat references start seeing them everywhere and that that becomes the beginning of a sort of, you know, Benjaminian associative political imagination. Um, so I'm glad that it's it's worked on, on this one re- reader, at least.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good note to end our episode and I... It was amazing talking to you about about your book, reading your book, and then talking to the author about it. So thank you for uh, taking time. Uh, You're to- welcome.
0: Thank you for, for having me. Thank you for reading it. It was really nice to be in conversation with you too.
2: Yeah, thank you. Have a great day.
0: Thank you.